Modern life. Between careers, kids, and health, it can be mayhem. That's why we're here. I'm Dr. Lisa Varghese-Kroll. And I'm Dr. Lonre Falusi. We're physicians, moms, and longtime friends who break it all down for you. Wondering how to juggle all the balls and still stay sane? Looking for advice but don't want to be overwhelmed? Curious about how to make the most out of life for your family but enjoy it at the same time? You're in the right place. Welcome to Health and Home with the Hippocratic Hosts. On this episode, we share part one of a two-part series on race, racism, and health. Today, we're talking to pediatrician, expert, and fellow podcast host, Dr. Jacqueline Duget, about the ways that race and equity affect health outcomes and medical care. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Hey, Lonre. Well, it has been a very tough few weeks here in the United States, Mm -hmm. where against the backdrop of the still ongoing global pandemic, the deaths of multiple Black Americans have led to massive protests against police brutality, protests that have actually spread to multiple countries around the world, and a public reckoning with the urgent need to be not just non-racist, but actively anti-racist. Right. And we, like many of you, have been struggling with the events of the last few weeks, with the killings of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and many more, sadly. I know that I've gone through many emotions, you know, from anger and frustration, exhaustion, hope here and there. Um, And now more than ever, it's important to be serious about educating ourselves and others because racism is a scourge. It's a pandemic in itself that's oppressed millions of black and brown people since the beginning of this country over 400 years ago. And it affects us all, whether we realize it or not. So this is the first of a two-part series that we've put together on racism and health in which we'll speak to two nationally known experts in the field. Today's episode will focus on race, racism, and its effect on health. And our next episode, episode number nine, will focus on talking with children and other loved ones about race. So make sure to tune in for that as well. So for everyone listening, we might all be at different stages in this work. You know, some of us may be unfamiliar or uncomfortable with talking about race, And some may have enough expertise to teach or talk about this for a living. So let's set the stage and define some terms. Great. So first term is racism. So the dictionary definition is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against a person or people on the basis of their membership in a particular racial or ethnic group. But beyond that dictionary definition, we have to think of racism as using power to oppress a person or a group of people. So you'll sometimes hear racism described as prejudice plus power or discrimination plus power. And a number of scholars have gone further to describe different levels or different types of racism, such as interpersonal racism or internalized racism, or what many people have been discussing lately which is systemic racism or sometimes um, considered as well institutionalized racism. So we'll link to resources in the show notes for these definitions for more reading. Another really important definition is anti-racism, which is the idea that it's not enough to just be a person who doesn't have hate in their heart. Because as Lonray said, racism isn't about individual behaviors. It's about systemic oppression. 
So anti-racism is the focused and sustained action taken to change institutional policies or practices that lead to racist effects. Right. And as Lisa said earlier, you know, some folks are new to having these conversations. Some of this might be uncomfortable. And I think one term that people have for a long time found uncomfortable, but recently have been understanding more or even you know, kind of embracing more is this term white privilege. So white privilege really means having advantages in life because of one's white skin. It does not mean that a person has had an easy life just because he or she is white. And it certainly doesn't mean that what a person has done in life was not earned. What it means is that your race did not make things harder for you. It means that you may have grown up in poverty, but when it was time to apply for a job or a loan, you were not discriminated against because of your race. And it shows up in everyday differences. Like I've never seen Band-Aids in the drugstore with my skin tone. You know, it sounds like a minor thing, right? You know, but it's it's so obvious that they all, you know, almost have a light tan color. That's um, right. They do not blend with my skin tone, but may blend with others. Right. I think every person of color has had that experience, right? Absolutely. And then it shows up in more dangerous ways. Like when white people are accused of a crime, they're less likely to be presumed guilty and less likely to be sentenced to death. So there's so much more we could say about this, um, but the book White Fragility by Dr. Robin D'Angelo goes into much more detail than we have time for. So we would definitely encourage you to check it out. Yeah, White Fragility is uh, definitely one of my favorite books uh, in this field. So another set of terms that are important to define are ally and accomplice. So in the context of anti-racism work, An ally is one who will support marginalized groups and commit to ongoing learning, largely in ways that are comfortable to them, while an accomplice is someone who will actively fight to dismantle racist systems and accept the personal or professional backlash that they might receive as a result of their activism. So we also wanted to discuss the term Black Lives Matter. So Black Lives Matter officially is a movement that was started in 2013 that is focused on, and this is reading from the website, combating and countering acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation, and centering black joy, end quote. So the chant Black Lives Matter is a reminder that black people matter too. So it doesn't mean that only black lives matter or that black lives matter more or the most. What it means is that for decades, for centuries, black lives have not mattered in this country, in the United States, as much as other lives. So it's just a reminder that black lives matter as well. And until we all agree that black lives matter, we'll actually never be able to say that all lives matter. That's so true. I think that's such an important distinction. Uh, You know, without it, we won't know where we are and we don't know the work that's ahead of us. And I think, you know, Lonre and I are both women of color, and so we both uh, have very personal experiences with race in our own lives. And for me, I'm Indian, and as a person of color, I'm always representative of my race in a way that people who aren't people of color are not. So if I'm a bad driver, or I'm taking a science class, or I'm untalented at art, people will say, oh, that's what Indians do. But if a white person does any of these things, they're considered to be an individual and not representative of all other white people. And 
As an Asian, we're part of what's known in the U.S. as the model minority. But no matter how hard we work or how qualified we are, we have almost no chance of making it into CEO or other leadership positions, even if we are better than white candidates. And because we're a visible minority, we will not be accepted in large numbers, even if we deserve to be there. So an example is that an American university would not allow 90% of their incoming class to be Asian, even if those Asians were all the most qualified applicants. But they would allow 90% of their class to be white, even though 90% of the American population is not white. So that means that Asians, who represent nearly 50 vastly different countries and cultures, are competing against each other for far fewer spots than a white candidate through no fault of their own. And another important aspect of my personal experience is as an Asian Christian whose parents grew up outside of the U.S. and who herself grew up outside of the U.S., all of us having learned Christianity elsewhere, it's often painful to see much of American Christianity not valuing social justice enough to give it more than lip service, or not valuing the safety of people of color over the comfort of the majority, right. particularly because I know that my faith specifically requires Christians to defend the oppressed. Absolutely. And I think it's also important to point out that, you know, uh, acknowledging these things doesn't mean that we don't love the white people in our lives. You know, my husband is white. Lonra and I both have many dear friends who are white. Many of them are mutual friends. But it is important to speak the truth about these issues or we have no chance of addressing them. Yeah, completely agree. And I found that one thing that's been uplifting and at the same time, you know, tiring over the last couple of weeks is that people have been speaking and sharing their experiences and listening. Um, and, you know, I've had my experiences as well with race and some things have been really blatant, like when I was five years old and my family was living in Boulder, Colorado. Um, we'd just come to the U.S. less than a year prior uh, so coming from a place where everyone looked like me to a place where very few people look like me. And I remember playing in uh, the front of some of my friend's house. So she and I were playing together. And at some point she said to me, you know, you'll have to leave soon because no offense, but my mom doesn't like black people. And I don't think I fully understood what that meant. Right. But I went home, we lived, right, we lived just a few doors down. I went home and I told my two older brothers and they understood it more and they were not happy. Um, but at that point, you know, I, I was just starting to understand then how people were perceived differently in this mm -hmm. country based on their skin color. And I was five years old and I'm sitting know, here now. Unbelievable. With, right. And I have a daughter who's five years old and thinking about the experiences that she is just about to start ha having or maybe has already had, but hasn't quite realized what what was going on around her. And other blatant ways that I've experienced racism, you know, I remember sitting in my high school, after school, doing some work, and my friend's brother walked by and called me the N-word right to my face. Oh, my gosh. And then some things have been even more subtle. Um, I remember in high school applying for a competitive college program, and my social studies teacher said to me, you know, I don't think you'll have a problem. You're black and you're female. You'll be fine. So completely discounting the fact that I was a straight A student and a complete nerd. I was president <laughs> of the honor society and math honor society in my school. Right. None um, of that mattered. None of that mattered. Right. So discounting all of my hard work and 
basically saying that with affirmative action, I would be fine. I, you know, I can't imagine that um, that being said to someone else who's not a person of color, rather that their work would be seen as their own personal hard work. And I we completely have to agree with Lisa in, in that sense of the pressure to that you're representing your entire race, no matter where you go. So I know I'm always cognizant of how I dress, you know, how I talk. Um, we talk about code switching, right? So maybe mm-hmm. professionally or in situations where you're one of the few minorities, um, you know, you have your professional voice or you may even hear people say you have your white voice. And then when you're in a situation where you're around people who are people of color, who look like you, then you're a little bit more relaxed in the way that you speak. Um, and in other situations, that that type of speech may be seen as unprofessional. So, you know, and this doesn't even include things like being followed in stores or sometimes being completely right. ignored in stores. It's like one extreme or the other or you know, buying hair products in the store and you walk past like rows and rows of of hair products for people who have finer hair than than most than most black Americans or most black people and then you turn the corner and there's that little ethnic hair product section um, and and really terribly in some stores that ethnic hair product section is locked that is unbelievable right and other hair products are not so so some of these things are really just kind of in our faces and some mm-hmm. are more subtle. And these are really complex issues. And we personally talk about our experiences with race, but we also know as physicians that racism can also affect people's health. So that brings us to our guest today. We are so excited to have Dr. Jacqueline Duget with us today. And Dr. Duget holds a master's degree in public health from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Her medical degree is from the Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, and she has a Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy from Rutgers University. And her experience includes, among other things, general pediatric practice, public health, school-based health centers, health promotion, health disparities, media, cultural competency, and community engagement. And in addition, Dr. Dujay is a writer, and she's the host and creator and producer of two podcasts, What is Black? and Talking About Books for Kids. And she's also served in several volunteer and leadership roles, including currently serving on the Frederick County, Maryland Public School Racial Equity Committee. And she's also served as the American Academy of Pediatrics Public Health Special Interest Group co-chair, and she's the past president of the Maryland Public Health Association. And she and her husband have two sons. So welcome, Dr. Duje. We're so happy to have you today. Um, it's a pleasure to, to be here today. Thank you. So Dr. Duje, we are so honored to have you join us. And we wanted to start out by talking about how to even frame the conversation around race. So we often hear people say that race is a social construct. It's not a biological construct. But can you talk to us about how race even came to be defined in the United States and really for what reasons? So my understanding of how race, um, race in the United States came into existence is really centered around um, the slave trade, right? The fact that um, Europeans um, came to this country um, and initially wanted um, free labor, right? So they basically um, worked with the indigenous population, Native Americans, that didn't work out too well for them. So they needed to find other individuals, right, to, you know, to kind of to create labor. 
And when you when you when you do that, when you bring people, when you enslave people, and you have to justify that, right? You have to justify why it is you're taking another human being and enslaving them, right? So even during that time, right, the 17th century, 18th century, right, they had indentured servants, but indentured servants were much different, right? There was there was no contract, and then you have Africans that were were brought to this country and enslaved, how do you then, again, like I said, it's just really a justification of labor exploitation. And then there's a whole science, you know, pseudoscience around how do you now justify and make make these individuals non-human in comparison to yourself so that you can then justify your position of power. That's my understanding. That That's really interesting, too, because when we think of it that way and then we think of how hundreds of years later these this construct is still in place and is, is if anything, solidified, how then uh, – how do we see or in your experience, how have you seen that a person's mental health is affected by racism considering both the person who's the target of racist actions um, but also others who experience it vicariously if they're, if they're witnessing these actions? So, I mean, there are some studies um, – Ultimately, the mental health impacts of either experiencing directly or watching it secondhand, right, is mental health stress. And so in terms of um, depression, anxiety, also internalizing that racism, right, internalizing that view of what other people think of you. Um, we also know it can have behavioral behavioral effects. For, for some young children, they can become irritable, fearful, um, older children. There can be some aggression or disobedience, right? So, and then that also leads into some of the disparities in terms of suspension rates because of um, certain kids, especially younger kids might be, you know, they may be quote unquote acting out or having behavioral difficulties, but in essence, they might be experiencing the trauma of, of racism. Um, and then we also know, you know, looking at the research for the policy statement that we'll talk about later, the AAP policy statement on racism, is that even those, even those who are bystanders um, they're not the perpetrators, but they're they're watching it. They again, I think that's also a form of vicarious racism, right? To be a bystander also um, causes um, psychological effects as well. Yeah, and you make a point that uh, you talk about kids in different stages, right? So even from being a young child, your mental health can be affected by racism all the way through adolescence. And we know it's not like when you turn eighteen that all of a sudden you get a restart and everything is rosy. That these issues carry on with people throughout their lifetime. Um, and you started talking about disparities. Let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, we've all seen data showing differences in health outcomes across various races and ethnicities. So, in your experience and your research, how how have you seen or what does the data show around how racism specifically contributes to disparities? when we compare health across people of different races? Um, so in, in preparing for today's interview, I wanted to look up, um, you know, again, how racism is structured, right? So I looked at the American Public Health Association. They have um, a library on racism and health, right? And they talk about how racism structures opportunity and assigns value based on how a person look, looks. And then the result is that conditions that are fairly un- that unfairly, there are conditions then that unfairly advantage some and unfairly disadvantage others. And racism hurts the health of our nation by preventing some people the opportunity to attain their highest level of health. So 
I say all this to say that, you know, for me, that's like the foundation of why racism ultimately causes these disparities in the sense that there are policies that are implemented, right? I think multi-generational policies, um, and I'll give you for, give you an example. So before this, before this interview, my son was interested in watching the 13th, right? Um, Ava DuVernay's documentary on um, the, the justice system. So if we look at historically how the poli- how that 13th Amendment was set up and established, right, it's not just the law and orders. Well, that's a that's that's a loaded term too as well, right? But the 13th Amendment was really set up to continue legally enslavement. So if you already are disadvantaging dis, dis if you disadvantage a an entire group of people based on this racial construct, right? That has economic impacts over long long t- long term, right? So we have this wealth gap this this wealth gap um where African Americans in this country tend to have less wealth than their white com- counterparts. That's historical, that's policy, right? So if you don't have land, if you didn't get your 40 acres in a, in a mule, right, that promise, mm-hmm. right? So then how how do you gain how do you gain wealth in this country? Historically it's been through access to land. So again, I think definitely policies and our justice system makes a difference. Um, especially as the, as the 13th, um, that documentary really shows, again, the impact of the justice system. Um, again, laws, right, during, the, during mes- many presidencies after Nixon, the war on drugs that created, the, you know, again, more mass incarceration that basically dismantled families and dismantled even any opportunity for, if you're a felon, you can't vote. You can't vote. How do you then make it? How do you then change, um, you know, change legislature, change, change policies, change laws, change the individuals that enact the laws. Right. And then we also look at our public defenders. They they tend to be elected. Right. Many judges get elected. So if you can't vote, you have no say. Mm -hmm. And if you look at an educational system. Right. Again, everything is about policy and politics. How are how are schools funded? There's redlining. Again, all of these, all of these, then create um, a foundation for inequality, and it's and and it's due to racism, it's due to structural racism. So, hopefully, I answered that question. Yeah, yeah. no, that's great, absolutely, because it's it's true. You know, much of this, it's almost as if it's creating a box that's very difficult to climb out of if those exits are blocked. You know, you cannot vote, you cannot hold a job. So some of these disparities, although they have been in place for hundreds of years in this country, how have you seen race and equity change over the past five to 10 years? Because I think we would all agree that, you know, even the past couple of weeks <laughs> have been a whirlwind and very challenging. So over the past five, ten, five to 10 years, there has been um, quite a bit of change. And what have you seen in your line of work? It's interesting. I think in you know, I, 10 years ago, I was still in public health. I was in private practice before. And I would probably say being a being a general pediatrician, I don't know if I necessarily saw race and equity. And I don't know if it's necessarily changed. Public health wise, I think there's more of a lens and more of a discussion about um, racial equity, race and equity. But I think more that, that for me, I was just talking to talking to family earlier I think more of the discussion is not race and equity. It's about di- it's about diversity mm-hmm. and inclusion, which I think is different than equity, yeah. which is different than talking about anti-racism. 
So I think we really have to talk about what equity is, right? Because I, I even shy away from it as well. When we talk about health equity, if you don't address racism, then you don't really have equity. True. Yeah. You can't achieve equity. So I think what I'm seeing is I'm seeing there's there's progress and there's movement towards the acknowledgement. But there's at some point, I think we've really got to put the two together and talk about racial equity and not just equity. And there's a whole bunch of other hyphenated equities we need to address. But so we're talking about the context of race. So I think it, it's coming. The policy statement from the American County Pediatrics. I see it. There's a progression. But I think at some point we've got to it's got to be like the Reese's Pieces, right? The peanut butter and the chocolate have to be <laughs> right. That race and equity have to have to coexist, and hopefully, it tastes good. Like it's palatable for people. Right? No, I think that is such a good point. I think we, um, over the last several years, have gotten very comfortable with those ideas of diversity and inclusion. You and I both served on a task force on diversity and inclusion for the American Academy of Pediatrics. Lisa serves on a committee for diversity and inclusion for the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehab. So I think our um, healthcare system is has embraced those terms, at least philosophically. We're not quite seeing that in the numbers as much, though, right? So let's talk maybe a little bit about that. How do we even get to where we want with diversity since you know, just we know that what 5% of physicians in the United States are black, uh, one out of every 20. Um, I know when I first heard that number, I found it shocking because of black women, it's only about 2% of physicians are black women. And, you know, I, I've always been a minority, but man, one of only 2%, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a hard number to sort of to swallow. And then in while 13% of the United States is black, that's a huge difference. Um, and then similarly, 18% of the U.S. population is Latinx and only about 6% of physicians identify as Latinx. So, you know, we hear about the need to increase that diversity and representation in healthcare, but really why does it matter? You know, why, why should we be pouring in efforts um, into, into those, in, putting resources into those efforts? Well, it's interesting. Like the first thing that came to my mind is like when you're talking about um, the diversity and inclusion work um, is that so I'm sort of signing up to to take on like so the so my the Maryland chapter is going to de- is developing a diversity and inclusion group. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to chair that. Right. So I said I'm going to chair that. But the more I think about diversity and inclusion and Laura, you, you have made a great point. It's kind of like how. How do I create how do how do we create diversity and inclusion when there's only so many of us in the room? So so this so again it goes back to your point about like why it does matter. Basically, what we mean when we need diversity, we we need more um, black doctors, we need more Hispanic doctors, we need more Asian American. Like we just need everybody, right? Um, historically, um, underrepresented you know, whatever the term is, right? If you're a black or Hispanic doctor, you're more than, you're more likely going to service um, lower income as well as um, minority populations. So that's important because of, and there's also the, there's research that shows that if there's an affinity, right, between the patient and the provider, the patient tends to feel um, listened to and provided, provided better care, so when you, when you have some concordance between the race of the patient and the race of the, um, of the physician, there tends to be better outcomes um, in many instances. But unfortunately, there's not enough of us to, to do that, to do that work. So I think when we talk about diversity and inclusion, 
until we can find find ways to increase the number of applicants to med school right and it's you may agree or disagree it's too late when it comes to med school i mean or actually even college right the pipeline needs to start earlier but i think there are some other issues that that kind of complicate that as well you know i think you need to have examples you need to have some assist, financial assistance and you also have to know that it's doable. Right. And hopefully if you see people see, you know, many of us don't. I was fortunate. You know, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I had black doctors. I had black teachers. When people say, did I have a black teacher? I said, yes, I had all my teachers were black. Um, so I think so hopefully, again, I hope I answered the question. Sometimes yeah. I can go off tangent. But. No, no, that's great. And I think that raises a different a different point because like you said if there are only so many of us in the room then until that number increases we have to we have to have our whole population the whole medical community on board so in your experience have you seen that doctors or other healthcare workers are being trained on the effect of racism on their patients health or the need for equity in healthcare I think it's coming. I know I didn't receive it in training, but that was over 20 years ago. And whatever training you kind of bring into the, you know, you, you know, you bring it in with you, right? If you already have an equity lens without even knowing at the time it was an equity lens. Right. I mean, I think ours um, was very minimal, right, Lonre? Yeah. Like, would you yes. agree? Little to none. Yeah. yeah. Maybe yes, a couple yes. of lectures at most. And I think now there's more discussions about implicit bias training and I know even with our local health department that, that I work with to try to address infant mortality, one of my colleagues spearheaded, um, provided implicit bias trainings for the local um, gyneco- OB- OBGYNs, right? The oh. obstetrician gynecologists. So, I, which I think is great. great. Yeah. Um, had a fellow pediatrician and there was another family practitioner who provided that training. But, but what we're finding, right, is that implicit bias training doesn't go far enough, right? Even though you find out you don't like somebody because of whatever X, Y, and Z issues you had or your 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 context of growing up, your family, that's not enough, right? Just because I know that I may not like you or may treat you differently, it's still the it's still how we it's still how we're taught to practice medicine, right? And medicine is so racialized, right? So I think the training the training is not just about knowing knowing that you that you have a bias, I think that's important. And I think it's also been important to me as an individual, but also beyond that, I need to know why I'm treating you the way I'm treating you. And that's based on training. And it's just interesting how we continue to over and over again, ascribe um, race as a risk factor. I mean, I know for all three of us, when you trained, and I'm sure this is still happening across hospitals now, when you're on rounds and you're you know, presenting your patient, this is a you know, 15-year-old African-American male, this is a 65-year-old African-American female, you know, this is a whatever, 35-year-old Latino male. Um, we, we put that in there right next to their like key demographic around their age. So that, that starts, okay, I know the age, so I'm going to start focusing on a certain, uh, you know, certain list of potential diagnoses. And then you throw in the race and we're supposed to kind of think about that in the same context, which, you know, as you said, you know, it's, this is not a biological issue that we're talking about. So it is pretty dangerous and frightening that we were trained that way. um, And, and that medicine is still being practiced that way. 
but you are you are the change, Dr. Duje. You are you're working <laughs> on 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 making this better, on changing this, and you co-authored uh, a seminal policy statement that we referenced earlier um, last year with the American Academy of Pediatrics titled The Impact of Racism on Child and Adolescent Health. So can you tell us some of the you know, key points or action steps that you want people to take away from this policy statement? Okay, so first and foremost, I think a key point is racism is bad for health. <laughs> it causes poor health outcomes. But I think the other great thing about this statement is that I think is one of the first statements, you know, that really talks about the the overall health effects, right? Developmental, um, phys- physical, as well as mental impacts that racism has. And it provides some key recommendations and things that pediatricians can start to think about doing, how they can become be anti-racist and really dismantle racism, um, starting from very young, because we know that, you know, our, our ideas of race, our ideas of racial racial bias start very early and they're influenced by our environment, right? So we know by, by six, early three to six months, right, kids already can um, differentiate difference. Right. And what I find interesting is when people ask the question, oh, so how do people, how do babies know the difference of race? I don't think they know the difference of race. They know different colors. Mm-hmm. They can see, right? And they, they, they see their family. So de- developmentally, that's appropriate, right? I know my mom and my dad, I know my family, but I know when someone's different. But then as you get older and start to ascribe, you know, you know, what you like about it or don't like about it. Right. Then that's when the racial bias comes into play, like by two to three. Right. And then as they get older, they're going to start to have more um, more fixed, fixed ideas about about racial identity and, ra- and racial bias and racial stereotypes. So I'm already preaching to the choir. But again, just to go back to how the policy statement really does kind of provide like a developmental, I think, approach to the idea of how um, race is developed. So it's almost kind of like in the in the wheelhouse of pediatricians. We talk about anticipatory guidance. We talk about stages of growth and development. So let's even put that into play and then put into practice how we as pediatricians can use that information to really make a difference with children. So, you know, one one of the one of the recommendations are um, creating a culturally safe medical home where um, you can t- where parents can feel comfortable talking about race, talking about their experience with racism. Um, also, advocating for changes in, in policies, especially education. And I'll give an example. Like I, you mentioned, I'm part of a racial equity committee. When our when my local di- when my local school district developed that racial equity committee, and they looked for volunteers, I didn't really know. My husband had to tell me, "Oh, you know, there's a racial equity committee," and he knew that he knew to mention that to me because I kind of talk about race a lot. <laughs> so, but that's one way to get involved, right? To to help make a difference. Um, also, you know, um, so I think working with the educational system. Also advocating for policies and programs. So it could be, a, you know, the educational system, could be housing, it could be um, um, the justice system, voting, right? And then also integrating positive youth development approaches, including racial socialization. So we have the Reach Out and Read program um, that promotes early childhood literacy for many children. We ha- but we also, we also have to look at the books that are offered in those programs, 
if you're in an urban area or any area where you have, you know, you, you don't just have a monolithic um, patient panel, right? Those books need to reflect your patient plan. I think that's great. That's very helpful. And I think, um, especially over the past couple of weeks, we've heard a lot that people are recognizing that we can't just stay comfortable and quiet and complacent. You know, we do have to call out these things that we see um, that maybe people might have been letting slide because they didn't want to make the dinner table awkward or the play date awkward, you know, and that maybe this is our collective responsibility to pick up that mantle a little bit more. So I think that's really helpful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Duget. This has been enlightening, empowering. Um, you've, I think, highlighted a lot of the difficulties and frustrations with this, but have also given us a lot of good practical tips on what we can all do to move things forward and to make things better and to be more inclusive um, and for everyone to have a role in this. So thank you so much for your expertise. Thank you so much for all that you are doing in your daily work. Uh, we all appreciate it so much. Thank you. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in and being part of this important discussion. We would love you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hippocratic Hosts. And we'd be honored if you reviewed us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to join us next time for part two of this series, where we'll discuss how to talk to kids and other loved ones about race. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Health at Home with the Hippocratic Hosts. Remember that all views expressed here are our own, not our employers, and all content is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical advice nor the establishment of a doctor-patient relationship. Always consult your own physician or healthcare team for any medical issues. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us, subscribe, and tell a friend. And check out our website at www.hippocratichosts.com for show notes on this and all our episodes. Can't wait to chat with you next time.